Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We come to the end of yet another week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and of course, as always, I'm so happy to have all of you uh, with us uh, for today's show. Um, I don't think it's an understatement or an overstatement, I think, really, to say that the sense of pessimism that Americans feel about the direction of the country right now is um, uh, is, is troubling. Um, the approval ratings for President Biden are in the low 30s. Three-quarters of Republicans actually believe that Donald Trump was elected president and is not sitting in the Oval Office because of fraud on the uh, part of Democrats. The um, right track, wrong track numbers for the country show that only 13% think that we're headed in the right direction. So I think it's safe to say that, that when we look at government, certainly, and public policy, there's a genuine sense of hopelessness uh, among people that we're mired in situations that we can't find our way out of. Um, into this uh, uh, difficult and troubling situation comes the former congressman from Texas uh, 23rd District, uh, Will Hurd, who uh, I'll introduce formally in just a minute, but Will Hurd has a brand new book out uh, called American Reboot, uh, in which he describes his solutions for how we can start pulling ourselves out of the crisis of confidence that we uh, live in. Um, before I do, let me introduce the panel. Of course, it's uh, Friday, which means uh, Jim Galloway, the former political columnist and analyst for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is here. Jim, we've been looking forward to this show for some time now. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is, this is, this is, this is, how, this is the man who will tell us how we how we jump over uh, the Donald Trump years into something entirely different and hopefully better. <laughs> all right, uh, we look forward to that. And uh, Professor Andrew Gillespie, uh, who you all know, is a professor of political science and the director of the James Weldon Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University, is here. And and Andrew, again, before I do a more formal introduction of Will Hurd, I want to say going in that one of the reasons he is here is because you've said to me for some time now, we need to get this guy on Political Rewind. Why are you so intrigued by uh, Will Hurd? Okay, so I, I will acknowledge a personal self-interest in that I do work on Black Republican Party identification. So, of course, uh, Congressman Hurd was somebody that I certainly followed during his congressional career. Um, but I think probably even more than that, and I'll just say, I think we met about 25 minutes ago, so I, I don't know him personally, but <laughs> how he has always struck me as a person that's reasonable and a person who is, is, is solution-oriented, and he seems like somebody who uh, you could have a good, hearty argument and discussion with and still be friends with at the end of the day. And I think that that's actually something that's really needed in our politics. Which is exactly what we try to do, as you know, on Political Rewind every day. All right, Will Hurd, uh, let's bring you into the conversation and let me uh, tell people about you just a little bit more uh, formally. You served three terms as the Republican congressman from the 23rd District in uh, Texas. Um, in, the, in those days, you were operating in basically what is a swing district and, and what nevertheless one uh, three terms, even when Democrats like Beto O'Rourke and Hillary Clinton were winning elections in the 23rd. The district is unbelievably enormous, uh, stretching from San Antonio to El Paso. I think you say in your book, it's like a 10-hour drive to get from one end of the district uh, uh, to the other. Uh, it includes El Paso, San Antonio, but I will tell you, uh, Will, uh, it includes uh, two cities of note, of course, Uvalde, uh, where we saw the awful tragedy uh, in the Uvalde schools a few weeks ago. Um, but on a happier note, Marfa was always in your district. And for everybody who loves country music, man, Marfa is one of the real capitals 
of the country music scene. Um, all that said, Will Hurd, it's a genuine pleasure to have you here. Um, I should also add that you studied, you double majored at Texas A&M, um, computer sciences and international affairs. You went on to join the CIA, left the CIA to go to Congress, and now you've retired from Congress and you're working on uh, cybersecurity issues separately from that. All that said, thanks for being on the show, Will. Well, well, Bill, um, that's like the nicest intro I've ever gotten. I don't know if y'all are like fattening me up to like ask the tough questions or, you know, this, this, is, this is great. And Mr. Galloway and Dr. Gillespie, it's a, it's a pleasure uh, to be on with, with y'all. And I'm looking forward to, to the conversation. I, Georgia plays such an important role in, um, in, our, in our country, especially now. So I'm looking forward to having this conversation with y'all and, and, and your listeners. And by the way, if you do go to Marfa, you should also go to Fort Davis, where there's a lot of talk yeah. about telescopes you know, right now with, with the James Webb Telescope. The third largest telescope in the world is in, is in um, Fort Davis, and it's because it's the darkest place in the United States of America, uh, Fort Davis is. So it's some really cool things out in that part of West Texas. And, and my, my old district, for some context, was roughly the size of the entire state of Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I certainly want to give uh, Jim and Andra a lot of time to ask you questions, but I want to start on a personal note in terms of your biography. Um, you were serving in the CIA, and you have told us in the book that uh, you loved that job. But an incident when you were in Kabul after a terrorist attack in which you were asked to meet with a bipartisan group of members of Congress— uh, change your mind about the direction you ought to head in your life. Tell us about that incident, which you described so well in your book. Sure, and, and to give some, some context, you know, born and raised in San Antonio, uh, San Antonio, Texas. I live in San Antonio now. I thought I was going to be a programmer, um, but I, um, I got blown away. Um, I had never really been outside of Texas, and it was my freshman year in college. I'm walking across campus, and I see a sign to take two journalism classes in Mexico City. And I had for four hundred and twenty-five dollars, and I had four hundred and fifty bucks in my bank account. So I went to Mexico, and and fell in love. And then I came back and added international studies, as as you, as you said, Bill. Um, and my first lecturer was this former CIA guy, and he told these amazing stories, and that began my interest. And so um, I, I applied and got accepted. And the CIA is truly a meritocracy. Everybody always asks, how'd you get in the CIA? Well, it was a application and an interview process, and, and I, um, it was the best job on the planet. My job was to recruit spies and steal secrets. Um, I got to work on the, the most pressing national security issues of the day. I did two years in, in what I used to call our super secret CIA training facility called The Farm. Uh, now it's on Google Maps. <laughs> um, I did two years <laughs> in, in India. Yeah, I wish I was a joke. Uh, it's a true story. I did two years in India, two years Pakistan. Uh, two years in New York doing interagency work, and then a year and a half in Afghanistan where I managed all of our undercover operations. In addition to, to recruiting spies and stealing secrets, I oftentimes had to brief our members of Congress who were traveling overseas. And the, the, the incident you're talking about was a, a group from HIPSI, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. These are the people that are responsible for overseeing our intelligence operations. And there was a CODEL, a congressional delegation of these members. Now, they were there at a time, as you said, our, our embassy had been attacked. Um, a bomb had gone off in front of the embassy, um, killed some of our local guards, taken out a section of our, of our security apparatus. And my unit was responsible for trying to figure out what happened. And so we go into this briefing. And um, first off, you know, we usually we're supposed to be a business casual and I'm walking in tactical gear, and, and your, your, your viewers can't see me now, but I'm clean-shaven, you know, my, my hair is closely cropped. But when I, was, when, I was in, uh, when I was in at that time, I had a really long beard and looked like I could have been in the Taliban, right? Um, and, and so I, I walk in this briefing, and one of the senior people on this, on this, on this delegation had been on HIPC, the House Intelligence Committee, for multiple years, asked, and this was about 2008, 2009, by the way, why the Iranians weren't supporting some of the groups in Afghanistan the way the Iranians were supporting other groups in Iraq. Now, 
probably for your sophisticated listeners, uh, they understand this is a somewhat crummy um, question, a basic question, but hey, he got the players right. So I start explaining the Sunni-Shia divide, and that same congressman raises his hand and says, hey, Will, what's the difference between a Sunni and a Shia? Now, I'm, I'm like, look, this guy is getting ready to make a really inappropriate joke. Who am I to deny him this opportunity? And my response was, I don't know, Congressman, what's the difference? And I, and I, and I was getting ready to go, but I'm bump bump, right? Because I thought he was making, getting ready to make a joke. His mouth was wide open and his chubby face turned bright red because he didn't know that difference in Islam. And, and I always say, it's okay for my big brother not to know that difference in Islam because my brother sells cable here in San Antonio, Texas. But for someone who's making decisions on sending our brothers and sisters, our spouses, our kids to places like Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Eastern Europe now, to not know that difference is unacceptable. For someone who's making decisions on how to spend billions of your listeners' hard-paying, hard you know, hard-earned dollars, that's unacceptable. And, and that's when some people had talked to me about running for, for office. I pushed my chair away from the table, walked outside and called them and said, hey, I'm in, right? And, and that was, that's how I, I ran for Congress. And now I, I lost my first race by 700 votes in the primary. Glad we don't tell that story anymore. But the opportunity in 14 came and, and, and I served for three years, three, three cycles, excuse me, six years. So, um, so Andra, I, okay, we, we know now why Will Hurd, and by the way, we asked, and Will Hurd said, please call me Will. I don't like being called congressman, didn't like it in the day when I was there, so we will call him Will. But, Andra, so he, he decides to run for Congress. I know that you have a particular interest in the choice he made about how to run. Well, I mean, when you choose to run, you usually need to choose to run under a party banner. And so the reason why I will, I will ask this is that for a project I'm, I'm working on now, I've read a number of biographies of prominent black Republicans. Um, I know why you're a Republican. It's very clear uh, from uh, the policy agenda that you lay out. But your origin story is less clear compared to some of the narratives that I've seen in other places. So um, how did you uh, arrive at the decision uh, to identify with the Republican Party and also to run under that party banner? No, look, great question. You know, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't reciting the Constitution when I was five years old, or you know, I, I wasn't in the college Republicans. Yes, I, I ran. I was, I was student body president at Texas A&M, um, but that's a, that was truly a, a nonpartisan thing. It starts with my dad, right? Like my dad would always make the comment. He, he, my dad's 89 years old. Uh, grew up in Marshall, Texas. Marshall, Texas is in East Texas, kind of near Dallas and Fort Worth. And it was probably the second most important city in the Confederacy. When Jefferson Davis thought that his time was up and they were coming, um, the, the North was coming to, to, to take Richmond, they were thinking about moving to Marshall, Texas, which was a key focus um, in, 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 in um, uh, when we went through um, uh, uh, um, uh, the, the, the period after, after the, the Civil War. And so a lot of Republicans were in Marshall, Texas, right? And that's where my dad's family was exposed to. My dad always says, you know, my dad's black, my mom's white. My dad always says, um, you know, I've been a Republican since Lincoln freed us, right? And then when I, when I, when I look at the people that have been influential in my life, um, Texas A&M is a very conservative school. And when I look at my mentors, you know, I got to know a, a President George W. Bush when he was governor, and 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 to the point where like we were friendly. Um, I got to know Rick Perry when he was our uh, our agriculture commissioner. Um, this was before he was lieutenant governor and before he was governor. Um, one of the reasons I ended up in the CIA uh, was because of Bob Gates. This is when um, George H. W. Bush's school got started at Texas A&M, mm -hmm. and because I was involved in student leadership, this was a guy that was, you know, a mentor. And I often got to, you know, have dinner with him and and Barbara Bush, you know, almost on a on a if not monthly, sometimes weekly basis. Um, and 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 Dr. Gates had ran um, that school before he became president A&M. So. These were a lot of the influences in my life. And, and it wasn't, hey, you got to wear the red T-shirt with the R after your name. 
those were the concepts. My my parents, uh, my dad was a traveling salesman, and 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 Dr. Gillespie, sorry for the long explanation, but um, my my parents were a traveling sales. My dad was a traveling salesman. Uh, my mom was was a homemaker, and when my dad retired from that previous career, they started a a beauty supply and a beauty school, right? So it was all, you know, th- these kind of concepts and, and things is what, what is what influenced me. And so when I decided to run, you know, it kind of it kind of made sense. It was like, yeah, of course, I kind of, I, uh, you know, um, um, I, you know, uh, believe in these principles. And then also, the the robust having a robust foreign policy and understanding America's role in the rest of the world historically, <laughs> you know, it's it's. It's hard to say who believes in that now based on these parties, right? Um, and I always say the political continuum is no longer a line. It's a horseshoe. And the nuts at the end are closer to each other than they are <laughs> into the middle, right? And, and so, so anyway, so, so all of those things is what influenced me to, 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 to make the decision. And, and, and I write about this in the book, but, but I do firmly believe in that formula that has been part of the Republican Party. That that freedom leads to opportunity, opportunity leads to growth, growth leads to progress, right? And and yes, parts of the Republican Party haven't espoused that lately, but that doesn't mean that uh, there's not a place uh, for for someone like me. And, and to be frank, I think most voters, most of, of of the country, is in that place. We just need to capture them. So, Jim, as I listen to Will Hurd, I realize in some ways I kind of buried the lead here. Because what Will Hurd really is, is a moderate Republican who was a rebel when he was in Congress. He voted against uh, Republican uh, uh, <laughs> bills as often as he voted for them. He is uh, not a supporter of Donald Trump. He's incurred Donald Trump's wrath on any number of occasions. And so this book that he's written, an America, uh, American Reboot, An Idealist Guide to Getting Big Things Done, is really an outgrowth of his uh, 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 commitment to finding a way uh, to bring people together in the middle. And, and I kind of buried that in introducing him. Uh, yeah, uh, I got to maybe page 125 and, 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 and realized that, uh, that Will Hurd is somebody that Eric Greitens would try to hunt down at this point. Uh, He'd have a hard time. Let's just put it that way. You know, it, it, uh, uh, he, he's going to have a rude awakening. Let's just put it. You know. But uh, okay. But 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 let me let me ask. What you've what you've laid out is yes yes. We have some. We we have the the people who made the Republican Party what it is over over the last three decades. A lot of them are still there. They've been silenced or are silent. How how do we get past the Trump hump? How, sure. how do how, how if you're if you're if you're a Republican and you're 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 not a Trump fan but you don't yeah. want to go to the Democratic Party, what do you do to survive and 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 how does that work? Well, well, Mr. Galloway, I'm, I'm going to use that I'm going to use that line. I've never heard the the, the Trump hump. Um, so so l- let me get back to there's two things I, I want to address in in in, in answering that question. Um, the, the phrase moderate. The phrase moderate, I, look, I, I, I hate labels. People have been trying to label me um, <clears throat> all my life. And, and I'm, not, I'm not criticizing y'all, by, by the way. Um, but, but people oftentimes, and, and I, you weren't using it in, in a negative way, but oftentimes in Washington media and circles, moderate is used as a, as, as a pejorative term. But guess what? We're the ones that actually get done. Pardon my language. I'm um, sorry. And, <laughs> it, and it is public and, radio. Okay, so is that allowed? No, I'm, 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 well, I'm sorry. Sort of. Sort, okay, sort yeah, of. That, that would be the only time. <laughs> I'm sorry to the to the Georgia uh, Broadcasting Oversight uh, Committee. Um, so, so the reality is, we're the ones. So, for me, I'm the one that had to take conservative message to to Democratic communities. My district was a 72 percent Latino district. Nobody thought I had a chance. Nobody thought a black Republican was going to be able to win in a majority Latino district, right? And, 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 we, and, and we did. Just like an Abigail Spanberger in Virginia, she's a Democrat, um, and she has to convince uh, Republicans to, to vote for her. So how do we get over the, the hump? 
And, and, and the reality is we have to do, we have to do the, the um, uh, it comes to math. We need more people voting in primaries. It's that simple. Now, y'all's primary is over, or the Texas primary is over, but we got to start thinking and looking towards the 2024 primary to make sure we get more people to vote. And here's why. Last election in 2020, 67% of the country, excuse me, 67% of the eligible voters in the country voted in the general election. But only 24% voted in the primary. And, and that 24% is oftentimes the most extreme. If you go back to the, the most reliable data on primary elections, still back in 2018, the 2020 numbers are still being crunched. But in 2018, our last non-presidential election, in the House, 92% of the House seats were decided in the primary. Because there was only 34, out of 435 seats, sorry for all the math, it's early in the morning, um, there was only 34 um, seats that were competitive where there's like split tickets, right, where, where people voted for one party of president, the other party uh, for the House. And the average number of voters in those primaries, 54,000 people. So yeah. 27,001 um, were making those decisions. So that's how we change and get more. And <clears throat> I won. <clears throat> I won because I got different kinds of voters to come vote for me in the primary. It's hard. Don't get me wrong. It's hard. Nobody does this because it's hard, but it's doable. And that's what we're going to need to be able to get over this home. Yeah, it was, uh, to, to your point on the word moderate, it was uh, sometime in the mid-90s, I think, that uh, that Johnny Isaacson decided that he would no longer be a moderate. He was always conservative. He dropped that label. Uh, but I'm wondering if, you know, it, it seems to me that Dealmaker still has some cachet. That 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 might be the the if if you're looking for labels that might mm -hmm. be the that might be the one to use these days. Well, I need to come on the show a little bit more. I'm getting a lot of good materials here. You know, Jim, you've done this before. <laughs> no, you're right. And guess what? This is what the country needs. The country needs deal makers, right? Because this is no longer just about how do we achieve our best selves. We are in a competition. It's very clear. We are in the competition with the Chinese government. And, and I try to be very precise when I say it's the Chinese government. It's not the Chinese people. It's definitely not Chinese Americans. The, the kind of hate our, our Asian American brothers and sisters have been seeing over the last couple of years is unacceptable. But it's the Chinese government. And the Chinese government has made it very clear. They're trying to surpass the United States of America as the global superpower. Why should we care? Because that's going to affect us at every level of our society and our life. It's going to affect our 401Ks. It's going to affect our kids' ability to get good-paying jobs. It's going, to, it's going to affect, you know, um, the role America has in the rest of the world. And the only way we're going to be able to compete with a competitor that's four times our size, that has a government that can marshal all factors of production in, in, in one direction, the only way we're going to compete is if we start getting our act together and get back to the, the, this, these notions that we're Americans first, we got to solve these problems and challenges in order for us to continue to be successful. And it starts with deal making, Jim, which is an old, um, which is which is which is a skill set that has atrophied in in Washington D.C. So, uh, well, you have uh, made a point in your book to talk about how your representational style was to be inclusive. That you knew that you were in a swing district. Uh, you knew that you may have, you know, that you got elected with Republican votes, but that you also needed to, you know, reach out and be responsive to Democrats. Did you see yourself as being different in your representational style from your colleagues or similar? And, and, and kind of what implications does that have for the gridlock that we see in Congress today? Look, uh, so, so, so yes, I was different. When, when I looked o o over, you know, I, I had to appeal to a much broader audience than many of my colleagues. Many of my colleagues, <clears throat> the most important segment of their population was literally only 3%, the 3% of people that put them over the top in a, in a primary election. And so that's a very narrow group of people. I had to speak to a much broader. And, and one of the things that I learned when you're in a 50-50 district, 50% Republican, 50% Democrat, is no matter what you do, half the district's upset with you, right? And, 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 and so that caused me to say, okay, you're not always going to agree with me, but you're going to need to know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. 
Um, I, I held records for the number of town halls that I did. This I, I remember. I, what was the group? It was when um, it, not indefensible, indivisible. When mm-hmm. indivisible was a thing, and they were chasing Republicans to be like, "You're not doing enough town halls." Um, they did a they did a town hall tracker, and they it was like, "Look at all these 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 terrible Republicans." And I was always number one at the list. Show up, talk to people, right? Don't be afraid of your constituents. That was that was my philosophy. And that's where we need to get back in, in, in Washington. Um, and if you're afraid to go out, if you're afraid to hold a town hall, if you're afraid um, to do a, a telephone town hall, then it's a sign that you're actually not speaking to, to most of, of the country. And, and to y'all's point, and y'all said it, you know, um, 80% of the country is somewhere in the middle. The, the, other, the, other, the other part that, Bill, that you didn't mention in, in the opening, there's some other stats that are pretty scary. 55% of Democrats. of Republicans and 49% of independents believe that democracy is no longer going to exist in the United States of America. That's, that's crazy that we, that we, that we think that, and that people are scared. And, and so that, so, so what does that mean? People want something different. We don't have to accept the way things are. And, and, and for me, the concept is get off the X. This is an old uh, thing I learned when I was in the CIA. We got to move. We got to do something different. That's why I try to put these ideas out because this is what the country needs. So let me follow up on that, if I may. Um, So you, in some ways, had the luxury of running in what was a swing district for your three terms in Congress. As you said, half the people would agree with you on issues. The other half would not. In Georgia, right now, after redistricting, we basically have one swing district, the second congressional district represented, of course, by Sanford Bishop, who you served with in the U.S. Yeah. House. Um, and so in, in, uh, in many cases, uh, now Sanford Bishop is in some trouble. Republicans think they have an edge in that district. So, so we're locked in here. If, if it, it's not here 50-50, they'll agree and disagree. It's, it's much bigger than that. It may be 90-10. Uh, who will uh, 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 be upset with you if you don't do what they want you to. And in the 14th district here, which has been redrawn dramatically, Marjorie Taylor Greene is suddenly representing people in Cobb County, Georgia, who are diametrically opposed to the way she sees uh, the world around her. Now, would it be fascinating to see if those Cobb County voters could have an impact in the general election? I guess it would be. But this goes to my larger question is, what do you do about the fact that there just aren't any swing districts left anymore and no incentive for uh, mem- mem- people who run for, uh, for Congress to find a way to make deals? Well, and I, let me put a finer point on this problem. I, I think beginning of this cycle, in the, again, in the House, um, only 16 seats uh, were split, t- split, t- split districts. Um, and... And then, um, and, and, and so that's, you know, worse than the 34 in 2020. But if we go back to 2000, 86 seats were split districts. If we go back to 1980, I think it was a number, you have to fact check me, it was over 125, right? And, and so, so if I had a magic wand, we, we all know that redistricting all over the country, every single state, has become about incumbent protection. And, 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 and look, here in Texas, red mm. seats got redder, but guess what? Blue seats got bluer too. And so those competitive seats on there. So, it, so if I had a magic wand, I would design seats. And, and again, statewide, it's difficult to do because it's the entire population, but n- no seat over a plus six. So you would never have a seat that was more than 56% Republican or Democrat. A plus six, in my opinion, is a is a jump ball but i don't have a magic wand so that's not going to happen so what do we need to do those 43 percent of americans that voted in a general election but didn't vote in a primary we need to get those people in to vote because to, to have better choices in november we get frustrated in november because we have crummy choices and and, and the only way to improve the choices is if we get more people to vote in those primaries and a couple of thousand people is a tectonic shift. Again, it's hard. Um, I got to get to the first break uh, in the show today. A lot more to talk about with uh, Will Hurd, 
a former member of uh, the U.S. House from Texas. His book is American Reboot, An Idealist Guide to Getting Big Things Done. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Jim Galloway and Andrew Gillespie join me in our conversation with former uh, Republican congressman from Texas, uh, Will Hurd, whose new book, American Reboot, is an, uh, an opportun- is an attempt to help us figure out how we can get back to solving problems in bipartisan ways uh, in this country. Uh, Jim, uh, I want to point out as we go into this, back in 2019, uh, Texas Monthly did a big profile of uh, Will and uh, the headline was, Will Hurd has defied both liberals and Donald Trump. Is he the future of the GOP or a party of one? He's sort of the Jeff Duncan of Texas. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and listen, I don't, I mean, I, I, a lot of this is about fixing Washington, and, and, I, and, 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 I, and we can get back to it. But, but uh, we can't ignore the, the, the fact that Texas 23 includes uh, Uvalde. Yeah. Uh, and and I know that as a as uh, I mean you you were you were deeply involved in that community as a congressman. I doubt that very much that you severed ties with him. What tell us about that town and what's going on? Look, what you need to know about Uvalde is everybody knows everybody, right? This wasn't just twenty one families impacted. This was the entire community impacted because people taught the kids and and little league. Um, they picked each other up from from school, right? This was a, this was a small, close knit community, and their outrage, right? The 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 lack of information or how the information about what happened has changed. Um, the fact that at the I think it was uh, you know by by the time that the killer was in the the room at twelve minutes while he was in the twelve minutes after being in the room, about three hundred and sixteen law enforcement officials. We're on site. That's outrageous. Nobody followed protocol um, on how to on how to deal with this. So so you have a, a, a community that is grieving. And instead of instead of spending the summer coming up with plans on how they're going to go to the beach or go to you know a, an amusement park, they had to plan funerals. Right. This is this is this is completely terrible. And this is an example of how a country, a state, a, a, a law enforcement unit have failed the community. And, and the, the only thing, because of the disastrous response by so many entities of the law enforcement, this issue is staying in the news, um, which is causing a, a, a conversation around this. Most Americans, and, and look, let me be upfront. I got an A rating from NRA when I was in Congress. NRA helped um, support my, my reelection, but I also talked to groups like Moms Demand Action in every town. I was one of eight Republicans when I was in the House to vote for a bill, which everybody was, knew it as HRA. It was basically what extended background checks. Uh, most people think that in order to, have, to get a, a rifle, you should be the same age as you need to, to get a, a handgun, which is, which is 21. Uh, there's so many steps that we can take like th- th- there's almost this feeling that we have to accept mass murderers as a way of life. No, it's preventable. We can do something about it. There's, there's a group called the, the Violence Project that has studied every former mass mass uh, mur- mass, uh, mass uh, 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 casualty event, um, about 268 of, up to Uvalde, and the number of people killed in those events is greater, excuse me, um, from 2008 until Uvalde, the number of people killed in that period was greater than the number of military officers killed in, in, in Afghanistan. It's, it's crazy. We've got to accept this. And we know the metamorphosis of a mass murderer, and we've got to address every step in that way because communities like Uvalde um, deserve it, and the next community where something like this is going to happen have to be ready. 
And, and this is an example. Gun violence is an example where the extremes get in the way. When one side says take all the guns and the other side says put more guns in, right, that prevents nuance and, 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 and conversation from happening. What, what Senators Chris Murphy and John Cornyn did, look, that was a step. There's no one thing that's going to solve all the problems in the past or the problems in the future, but that was a step. But the grief that both of those, mem- those, both of, those members of the Senate got from their own parties for trying to cooperate and to be those deal makers um, was, was, pretty, was, pretty, was, pretty disa- was pretty tough. And so, so we got to be thinking about the communities. We got to be thinking about the fact that 50% of the teenagers in the United States of America are afraid to go to school because they think they're going to get shot. That's absolutely unacceptable. And anybody who thinks that thoughts and prayers or the, that, 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 that's the solution or that we can't do anything because of the filibuster, if that's what they think, then we need to run those people out of office and get folks that are willing to be deal makers. I'd like to shift a little bit and talk about another kind of hot uh, cultural topic. Uh, I'd be remiss as a scholar race to not bring it up. Uh, and um, you talk about race differently than some of your colleagues. So you don't talk about it like the National Party, um, which uh, has made an increasingly overt racial appeal to try to mobilize uh, uh, white voters and stoke uh, white racial resentment. Um, you also sound different than a lot of black Republicans um, who, um, you know, often talk about the blood or who are urging blacks to get off what they call the democratic plantation. What is informing um, your view of race and racism and how a Republican Party should address uh, these issues that are still an important and, and sad part of, of, of our today and not just our history? Look, what informs me is being in the community, right? And, and, and so it's, for me, it's, it's black and brown communities and, and what's being impacted. And, and when I, so since I had a, a district that was 72% Latino and only 3% um, black, um, you know, but I, I saw in growing up in, in the black community that these were, that these were uh, similar issues. And for me, it starts with education. Right? We, we have income inequality because we have education inequality. And if we ensure that our, our you know, uh, communities have access to education, that's going to help them move up the economic ladder, which is, which is going to solve some of these issues. So, how, so, so for me, it's about uh, uh, um, taking it to the community. And, and, and education matters. When I would be knocking on doors in a place like El Paso, El Paso is a 92% Latino district. Uh, probably 99% Democratic town, right? And, and when I would knock on the door, and they're like, why should I vote for you? And I'm like, do you like your schools? And they're like, no, our schools have been crummy for a long time. I was like, well, none of your current elected leaders have tried to do anything about it. And so, so, so that's, how I, that's how I approach this. How are you going to actually uplift the community and provide tools um, to a community um, that is, is going to be able to grow. And, and that's, that's, that's how I, I talk about it. And, and what informs me is, is being in those communities and figuring out um, what they need. And, and yes, um, education is not going to solve everything. Um, we still have problems in those communities that have, have – I always tell people that my parents, who have been married for 52 years, live in the house that they live in, because that was the only place I would sell to an interracial couple. And, and guess what? They didn't have the best schools in that neighborhood. I ended up being okay, right? But, but some, of my, some of my neighbors didn't have access to the best schools because they, this was the only places that they were allowed to live because of the color of their skin. So how many, how many generations does that impact, right? I don't know, at least one, right? Probably two. And, and so how do you address some of those structural issues um, and, and p- pay some special attention um, to people that have ultimately not benefited um, from our, 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 current, uh, our, our current society. So I hope so, that uh, – Jim, I, jump yeah. in. Yeah, yeah, just – I mean, okay, so, so, so if, if you were going to be sitting down with, oh, uh, say, say John Cornyn or, 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 you know, God forbid, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and, and to, to talk about how, how, does the, how does the Republican Party need to change when it's talking about race? 
It, it, this sure. is, it, look, this is a, it's a very important issue in, in Georgia because yeah. basically what we've seen uh, over the last two decades is a, is a bleaching of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it used to, I mean, I mean, uh, it, uh, the Georgia GOP never had a whole lot of, 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 of black membership, but it did have some, and they, and, 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 and it, and it, they had a lengthy history and a, uh, 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 a long line mm-hmm. there, and they've largely disappeared. How do you get those back? Sure. Sure. So, so one, I think Congresswoman Green probably wouldn't sit down with me, and 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 Senator Cornyn uh, is is a friend, and and he and he gets. It. I, I, look, I'm 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 a fan of Senator Cornyn. Um, and so here's how I would articulate: We actually, the Republican Party, the GOP, has an opportunity to make inroads into into communities of color, and and part of this is because. The Democratic Party has often ignored them and taken their and taken them for granted to expect that they're always going to be there. I think also um, the and, and 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 the way the, the the lesson I would say is, and this is actually the title of my book: Don't be an a hole, don't be a racist, don't be a misogynist, don't be a homophobe, right? Don't be a, don't, add whatever adjective to the phobe, right? Don't be those things. And talk about normal things. Guess what? You know what folks in Atlanta want? They want to be the ability to help grow their business and hire more people. Folks in Atlanta want to be able to make sure their kids get a good-paying job, right? That, that's, that's not different than, than, any, than, than anywhere else. And, and so talk about those things, but remove all of those, the language of when that, that's, that's racist, right? Like, it, it's, it's, it's that simple. Why are Latinos in South and West Texas going to likely vote in the highest numbers ever or close to highest numbers in 2022? They're going to do that because 40% of people along the border have a family member or connected to law enforcement in some, some form or fashion, and another 40% is connected to the oil and gas industry. So when one party is seen as anti-police and law enforcement, an anti-energy sector, then, then they're gonna, you're taking away our, our, our way of life. This is the opportunity that GOP has. But if we get away from, from some of this racist rhetoric and just talk about solving problems for community, we're going to be better off. Hey, I got to get to a break, but Andre, before I do, real quickly, I'd love to get you uh, one more time involved because you asked the question that started this. So t- take just a minute and uh, give it, reflect on this for us. Well, and, and the follow-up question that I had, and it probably is something we'd have to talk about a, a lot later, is I hear you talking about systemic racism, but there seems to be this tension in the Republican Party with acknowledging systemic and systemic racism. People acknowledge historical racism, but they don't necessarily look at under you know lying scripts that inform things. I mean, you talk about it in terms of your parents' history, but how does that inform your policy perspectives and even your approach to actually talking to people about issues? I think that's a good question. Let's do this. Let's get the break out of the way, because if I don't, Natalie Mendenhall is going to be just yelling into my ears. Break, break, we'll break right now and come back and give Will Hurd a chance to uh, answer that question and more. So before the break, uh, Will Hurd, author of American Reboot, uh, Andrew Gillespie asked uh, you a very important question. How do you get Republicans to acknowledge there is such thing as systemic racism? I take it one step further. Here in Georgia, as in many other Republican states, you've got legislatures uh, passing laws like not allowing the teaching of what they call divisive concepts, uh, uh, demonizing the notion of critical race theory, which isn't even taught in uh, schools from K through 12. So, you know, acknowledging systemic racism uh, operates, to my way of thinking, sort of at a 50,000-foot level, although it has practical impacts. But every day in our classrooms, it's affecting how people talk about race. Slavery happened. Racism exists. Jim Crow happened. It had an impact on our society. It's okay to accept these things and recognize these things because until we recognize them, we do not know the impact this has. And Dr. Gillespie asked, how do I talk about this? Part of it is understand and know that. Know what redlining is and means and how that impacted communities, right? So, so these, yeah. these are the, – but, but 
I think the Democratic Party creates an environment that makes some of these conversations worse because oftentimes there's some, and not all, the extreme wing that wants to make everybody feel like right now, today, you're responsible for all those things that have happened in the past. And so that is where some of the elements in the Republican Party are responding to to say, hey, um, you're, you're currently not the problem. I'm not advocating or saying that either side is, is right, but for me, the, the answer and what I try to do is say, hey, here are the impacts that these things are having on our society. Here are the things that we can do. Oh, and by the way, when we improve it, it's better for everybody, right? And, and so, so this, is a, this, is a, this, is a hard, this is a hard question. Um, this is a hard problem to tackle. We have to tackle it if we're going to be able to get to a point where the United States is going to be able to continue to hold the role that we have in the, in the rest of the world. Yeah, we, I mean, when when we yeah when we talk about systemic racism, I mean, uh, one of the one of the lingering issues, of course, is uh, voting rights, mm-hmm. and, uh, and 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 quite frankly, Texas has been in the for, forefront of of making voting harder. Uh, how, how do you how do you how do you address that? So 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 uh, I'd push back just a little bit on on that. The the original bill that came in Texas, and I know. This has been, been an important issue uh, uh, there in Georgia, and I don't presume to understand the Georgia law as well as well in the Texas law. Uh, the, the Texas original law that was proposed was absolutely ludicrous. Um, and then it was, a lot of changes were made, to, even to the point where the Dallas Morning News, which no one is, gonna, is going to uh, mistake the Dallas Morning News as a, as a conservative uh, media outlet, <laughs> Um, talked about how some of these changes uh, weren't as bad as what uh, national media was making it out to be. Here's what I will say, though. We should make it easier to vote, not harder. The more people voting, the better. We should be making it super easy, easy to register. You should be able to register online. What, one of the things that I think is, is fascinating, what most people don't know, is every state have different rules. Texas has, four, has two weeks of early voting. You can vote from 8 to 8 and on the weekends. Um, I believe Alabama has one day. And, and so making Election Day a national holiday, would that be valuable in a place like Alabama? Probably. But in Texas, you have 14 days in order to do that. In, in Texas, you do not have to register in order to vote in a primary. You can pick whichever primary you want to vote uh, when, when you show up. And so, so these are some of, uh, of the rules that we have in Texas. Making it easier to vote, I, I think, is the absolute uh, right way to do it. But, but when I, when I, if we look at Texas, our primary was in March. 1.8 million Republicans voted in the primary, 1.2 million Democrats. Three million voters out of 29 million voted. That is terrible. That is terrible turnout. And not all that turnout was because people were doing things like what happened to my dad when he was voting in the 60s and the burning their vote. Part of that is because there's crummy candidates that are not inspiring people to come out to vote. And so, so this, is, this, is, this is not to minimize the problem. Let's make it easier. And, and it's 2022. We should be able to register on our phone. If the, if the Estonians, if the people in Estonia can do an a, election online when they're constantly being targeted uh, by the government of Russia, why can't we at least register online? And, and so, so, yes, the, making it easier for people, but we also need to get better candidates for people to vote for, and we need more people standing up and trying to get all those voters that don't vote because they don't think it's worth it, they don't think there's going to have any impact, or they think everybody who's running are a bunch of jokers – um, we need candidates that are going to appeal to that as well, too. All right. Will Hurd, uh, what happens if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee for 20, in 2024? And a stealth question to go with that. Any Google search of your name these days says brings up articles asking, is Will Hurd thinking about running for president? And American Reboot is the kind of book that many political uh, folks uh, do publish uh, before the next step in their political career. So what about Trump as a Republican nominee? Sure. What does it do to the future of the party? And what about you? So, so Donald Trump, the, the election was not stolen from him. It was lost. Donald Trump lost the House. Donald Trump lost the Senate. Donald Trump lost the White House. 
period, full stop. If Donald Trump had just reached parity with all the people down, all the Republicans down ballot, if he got the same number of votes of all the people down ballot of him in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Georgia, he would have won. He underperformed Republicans, period, full stop. So if Donald Trump is the nominee of the Republican Party, he loses in 2024. And, and guess what? The environment in 2024 is going to be very different than the environment is right now, period, full stop. Now, what's my future? I'm 44 years old. My political career is probably not over. If the opportunity comes for me to serve my country again, the way I got to serve it in Congress and the way I got to serve it in the CIA, I'll evaluate it. I've been lucky um, to, to have had the opportunities that I've had in, in this country. And for me, putting American Reboot was talking about how do we address, address these five generational defining challenges that are important for us to continue to do for the next 246 years, what we've done for the last 246 years, and that's improve the quality of life of all Americans and uplift humanity. If I could play a role in that, then, then, then of course, um, I, would, I would evaluate it. Andra, I love someone in politics who says, I'm open to the next step in politics. We all do. We've just got time for one kind of last quick question, Andra, and I want to give you that chance. Sure, yes, and thank you, Will, for your candor on that question. Um, people have talked about, in Georgia, our Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan talks about the Republican Party 2.0, and Kingsinger has an organization that talks about doing that. Are you involved in any of those types of efforts, and if so, how? Look, we, we, all, we all talk to each other, right, and, and, and try to be supportive. And, and ultimately, for, for me, what I'm trying to do is how do we target those people that, don't, that vote in general elections but not primaries? I think those are, those, those are the folks that help me win. Um, those are the folks that are going to help change this country. Because if we want to change and make the Republican Party look different, we've got to change the people that are voting in Republican primaries. And so there's a lot of initiatives that we're, that we're trying to do, and that's something that I'm spending time and, 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 and having left the House um, has given me the bandwidth to do those kinds of things. I, I wish. This is one of those days when I really don't want to end Political Rewind. Uh, this has been just a wonderful conversation, Will Hurd. Uh, your new book, uh, American Reboot, An Idealist Guide to Getting Big Things uh, Done. It was a fascinating read. Um, if you're going to go out and get the book, get it from an independent bookstore, please. Um, we'd really like to keep supporting local bookstores in our, all of our communities across Georgia. Andre Gillespie, Jim Galloway, I'm really thrilled you were here, too. And Will Hurd, I'm going to put you on the spot. I mean, Georgia's an important state in elections mm -hmm. in the years ahead, so we would love sometime to get all three of you together again and continue the conversation down the road. Will you come back at some point? Now, I know you're not going to do it in a week, but in, a, in weeks down the road? Uh, of, of course. I've always had a, a, a great association. This was a super fun conversation. Thanks for the questions and thanks for having me on. And also, some folks, you can follow me on Will Be Heard and see some of the writings I talk about. So thanks for y'all's time. Will Heard gets in that last comment. Uh, that's it for us for today. We're back on Monday with another brand new show. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>